0: of envy as he looks around at others. Don't forget that I said that envy included two things, jealousy and covetousness. And you have to understand a little bit of the history of Korah before we get to number 16 when they rise up against Moses. Okay? Now, later in Israel's history, I want to bring this out because later there was a temple built. Okay? Okay? And in 1 Chronicles chapter 9, in verse 19, 1 Chronicles chapter 9, in verse 19, I'm giving you some background here. This is important, this background, this history is important to understand what's going on or what has happened in the heart of Korah. And uh, in chapter 9 of 1 Chronicles, verse 19, and Shalom, the son of Korah, it's now Korah, the son of Ebiasaph. The son of Korah and his brethren, the house of his father, the Korahites, were over the work of the service keepers of the gates of the tabernacle, and their fathers, being over the host of the Lord, were keepers of the entry. So they became porters of that which was now established as a permanent structure. In 2 Chronicles, in chapter 31, in verse 14, and Cori, the son of Imna the Levite, the porter toward the east, was over the freewill offerings of God to distribute the oblations of the Lord in the most holy things. Now, the tabernacle is not being moved anymore. The temple is going to be built. And now, these sons of Kohath, these Levitical priests, were... Uh, had the responsibility of keeping the door and distributing the food to the people, Diane. Second Chronicles thirty one, fourteen. Second Chronicles thirty-one fourteen. They kept the door of the tabernacle. They distributed the food to the families of the priesthood. Israel would bring their offerings and a certain portion were taken for the priest. Well it had to be taken from the tabernacle or temple to the families where they lived in their villages. That was the job that they ended up doing. So from the very beginning, though they were blessed of God to be part of the Levitical priesthood, their blessing included serving and serving others. So why did they become envious as we read in Numbers chapter 16? Go back over there because we want to look again at what took place. And we want to look at the wording of the scriptures to teach us what was happening in their hearts when this uh, rising up took place, this envy took hold, so they rose up against Moses and against Aaron. First, envy begins, as I have already said, in the other uh, illustrations that I've used, and it is true also here with Korah, they became discontent with the type of service they were asked to perform for the Lord. God had given instruction as to what they were supposed to be doing. It was not Moses or Aaron, but God himself spoke to Moses and Aaron, And said, this is what they're supposed to be doing. And then when wagons were provided, God said, don't give them to the sons of Korah because they're to carry that stuff on their shoulders. It was God's instructions. And as they looked around at what others had in their prosperity and the things of God and their service was different than everybody else's, they became discontent and... uh, rebelled against God and his, his servant Moses his servants Moses and Aaron. Numbers chapter sixteen also teaches that their discontentment was justified in their mind by their knowledge of the universal acceptance of all believers before the Lord. Now, I have taught this to you before, that all of God's children are equal in the eyes of God. That we don't have a hierarchy, beginning with the lowest going up to the highest here, but we have this way, that all of us are brethren. And before God, everyone that is a genuine Christian is equal in the eyes of God, and profitable in the eyes of God, and necessary in the eyes of God in the New Testament local church absolutely in the Old Testament it was the same those are sacred things yes it was yep yeah. they couldn't see that they had been placed in a place of honor to do the kind of service that God had given them they couldn't see it and and they justified their action against the Aaron and Moses, or Moses and Aaron as it is listed in the scriptures, uh, by saying all of us are equal in the eyes of God. That's what they say in verse 3. Numbers 16, 3. Seeing all the congregation are holy, and every one of them, and the Lord is among them. That is... God is with all of us. If we're genuine Christians, if we're genuine people of God, God is with all of us. You know, that's a truth. That is a truth. In the New Testament, it comes over into the priesthood of believers that every one of us, God is with us, and we have access to God on our own. There is a truth established in the scriptures relating to that but you never use the truth of God to justify your sin. And that's what they were doing. They were sinning against God and justifying it by quoting the Scriptures, by quoting a doctrine into the Scriptures. And then they accused Moses and Aaron uh, in that same verse, number 16, verse 3, Wherefore then lift ye up yourself above the congregation of the Lord. Why are you lifting yourself up above the rest of us? Now, what is wrong with that statement? Had Moses and Aaron lifted themselves up above the congregation? Or had God lifted them up and put them in the position they were in? In fact, God had lifted up Korah to the position that he was in. Above the rest of the tribes of Israel, none could do what they were doing for the cause of God in the tabernacle. None could. All the rest of the 11 tribes were left out of that process except the Levitical priesthood. And so they had a position that they were given of God and it was a position above all the rest of the eleven tribes, but God had said something to Moses and had lifted him up above the congregation. They questioned God and Moses saying, since God was among all the saints in Israel, why did Moses seek to hold such an exalted position? Wherefore, Lift ye up yourself. Why have you lifted yourself up? Now, this strikes at the call of the ministry. And in terms of application, it applies even to us today. The call to the ministry is not a self-elevation. It is a divine elevation. It is not something which we boast in or brag about. In fact, we fear and tremble, tremble those of us who have been called to the ministry, knowing that there is a greater judgment against those who are called to be teachers and preachers of the Word of God if we do not handle the Word of God rightly. God is the one who distinguishes between the gifts. We started out this study looking at chapter 12, 13, and 14 together, and we started out in chapter 12 saying it is God that gave the gift gifts to individual members of the church remember those studies back many months ago <laughs> that it is god himself who gifts the individual members of the church bestowing upon them grace and abilities that they did not previously have in order that they might function in his church according to his purposes and according to his decrees and instruction God distinguishes that, and God distinguishes the abilities given to one individual above a, mu- a number, another. This is true among those in the congregation, as God bestows greater faith upon some, greater grace upon some than He does on others, greater abilities. It is also true among preachers that there are some preachers that are gifted far above others, that have abilities and, uh, and, uh, and 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 gifts that exceed their brothers in the pulpit. And their churches flourish under those gifts. And the numbers of them exceed the numbers of others. And uh, I think about Charles Spurgeon preaching to 10, 15, 20,000 at a time. And I've preached to some good numbers, not on a regular basis, but I... Preach to good numbers, and but I've never preached like that. Did you know that 95% of the Baptist churches in the U.S. have a membership of 100 or less? I don't know if you knew that or not. That's true. It's just like a business. There are some huge, huge businesses, but most of the business in the U.S. is taken care of by mom and pop or uh, operations god distinguishes that and we find that if we understand those truths there is a contentment in being able to serve the lord where we're at with the gifts that we have what is the cure for this kind of envy What if we find ourselves comparing ourselves one to another? What if we find ourselves looking at a brother or a sister and and we find ourselves saying, well, uh, uh, I don't really like them because they got this and they got that and they're doing this and they're doing that. and Something wells up in the heart that shouldn't be there. What does the scripture teach us? Go back to the New Testament now. Book of Galatians. We'll go there, Galatians chapter 5, we'll look at Galatians chapter 5 beginning in verse 24, the scripture says, they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts, and, uh, and that word affections and lust doesn't just apply to inordinate sexual activity. It applies to anything that we are lusting after, that we are, uh, uh, our heart is set upon, that is is contrary to God's will for our lives. Okay. They that are Christ have crucified the flesh. There's not much preaching today on the mortification of the flesh, mortification of sin. Uh, but it is found in the scriptures, the putting to death of ourself for the cause of Christ. And I'm not talking about physical death here. I'm talking about putting to death those things that hinder us from serving the Lord Jesus Christ with all of our hearts. And then Paul says, if we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. It is contrary to affections and lust of the flesh, walking in the spirit is. And then says, Let us not be desirous of vainglory. Because, it doesn't say because, I'm going to add that because that's the construction here. Uh, vainglory or seeking after vainglory ends up provoking one another and envying one another. And so the remedy to this kind of envy is not to be desirous of vain glory, not to be desirous of a glory of a position or that is useless for you, the word vain, okay? That God hasn't equipped you to do. One of the things that is the responsibility of a local church, the pastor of the church first and the church second, is that those who claim to be called of God to the gospel ministry, be properly tested so that we do not have someone seeking vainglory, but someone who is genuinely gifted of God. Someone genuinely gifted of God. And it is a task that is a weighty one. Most of us are ready to say, Amen, brother, let us lay hands and send you out. I've had to, the unpleasant task of telling someone you are not called to the gospel ministry. You are not called to the gospel. You are not equipped for that. You are not gifted by God to that end. Well, oh, Brother Pat, how can you do such a thing? You're quenching the spirit. You're, you're grieving God. No. Twenty-something years later, it's still true. still true. The church agreed. It is an unpleasant task. But it is our responsibility. If someone is seeking after vainglory in any aspect of things, we deal with it as a church. Vainglory is found in seeking a place where people magnify you and your abilities above others. Where the focus is on you and not on the Scriptures and not on the Lord Jesus Christ. The true gospel preacher will focus your attention upon the Lord Jesus Christ. It will focus your attention upon the Word of God alone as your final authority. The true gospel preacher is going to take all the emphasis off of himself and place it on the Son of God. And if you don't hear that in preaching, then you need to be aware a lot of what's going on in this country and in others in this world is nothing but vain glory—a display of "look at me," and send your money to me too. It's all vain glory. It's going to burn up wood, hay, and stubble if they are even—even even if they—if they are even the Lord's. Paul says in First Corinthians, in chapter three. Let us go over there quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, speaking of himself and of all ministers, in 1 Corinthians in chapter 3, beginning in verse 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 6, Paul writing to this church at Corinth, and what is the problem in Corinth? The problem in Corinth is that they are involved in envying each other for the gifts that they have, and they are arguing among each other as to who has the best gifts and who is the most spiritual and the conflicts that are arising in that church is causing division and strife and Paul is writing to them to address this issue and he says if this is in you, you don't have true biblical love and if you don't have true biblical love, you are not exhibiting Christian character. That's the foundation for this whole book. Christian character looks like this. And so he's now going to use himself as an example here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 6. By the way, that follows on the heels of the fact that he said I can't feed you with meat because you were carnal, and he defines carnality as uh, in verse 3, as where is there among there is among you envying? and strife, and divisions, are you not carnal and walk as men? Isn't that what the world does? So, now in verse 6, he comes in and uses himself and other servants that are around him as examples of just the opposite of that. He says in verse 6, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. That is enough for us to understand how God works. God says... You're going to plant, you're going to water, and in the end, I'm the one that's going to be glorified because I'm the one that's going to be saved. It wasn't about you, and it wasn't about you, but it's all about me. And this was where Paul is leading their minds and their hearts. Verse 4, I'm sorry, verse 7. So then, if that is true, if I'm planting and another's watering, it's the, and God gives the increase, so what's the conclusion? So then, what? So then, neither is he that planteth anything, neither is he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. What are you, Brother Pat? Nothing. What are you, Dan? Nothing. Brother? Nothing. What is God? Everything. Everything. Verse 8, he doesn't leave us in the fact that we were just nothing. He continues on and gives us a little glimpse of the glory God has bestowed upon us. He, now he that planteth and he that watereth are one. That is, they are laboring together. They are not divided one with another. And every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. And this is where Paul leads you. You do what you're supposed to do. God's going to do what he's going to do and what only God can do and your reward's coming. Don't look for your reward among men. One of the best things you can do is stop looking for the approval of men in the ministry that God has given you. It's good to have their approval. It's good that the people of God have an appreciation for the gifts that God has placed in the church. It's good, whatever those gifts are. That we appreciate what God has done in giving this assembly something of a measure of his grace among the members of this assembly. And we rejoice that he has done so. But in the end we understand that it is God that does these things. And then he says, verse 9, we are labors together with God. That is the glory. I'm with God and God is with me and I'm going to wait later on he'll say judge nothing before the day God's going to sort it all out and God's going to prove what's good and what's not and whatever our thoughts may be as we watch men and ooh and all over these mega churches I hope you're not I really do but if you are you need to be real careful One of these days, all of that stuff's going to come before God. And God's going to sort it out for us. And really, that's the day we want to, that we're we're laboring toward. We're laboring toward the day when God says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. But he had five and you only gave me two. No, 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 no. No, that's not the attitude, is it? You know what I'm talking about, right? God gave one guy five talents, another one two, another one one. And the one that was one wasted the whole thing. The other two looked at what God gave them and did what they could with what God gave them. And both received exactly the same commendation from God. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou has been faithful in a little. Inherit that kingdom that I prepared. Come in. So, what do we learn from this this morning? We seek the place that God has given us, and that only. We use the gifts that God has given us, and that only. We don't rely upon uh, philosophies of the world or the teachings of the world in the the Lord's house or psychology of the world in the Lord's house. We rely solely on, and only upon what God has given us as grace. That's why I have said to you from the beginning, what has God done for you? What is your abilities? Use them for the glory of God. Use them. In God's church, because he gave you something to, for the benefit of his assembly in this place. And you serve the Lord. God's going to give the increase. Pat, I wrote proud I hadn't seen anything well, you're not looking through the eyes of God. Let me just encourage you. You're not looking through the eyes of God. You can't look through the eyes of God. You have no idea what God has done with you. That's why you don't judge what is going on today. But I look at Brother So-and-so and look at how profitable he is, how, 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 how spiritual he is, how, how, how much fruit he has, and I don't have anything. Uh, let God sort that out. Let God sort that out. You just be faithful to what you know and do what you can do. And not look at others. And certainly don't compare yourself with others. Because you are unique. God has chosen you to save you and gifted you and put you in this assembly to use you. And you are a necessary part of what's going on in this church. Let's pray together.